0: Welcome to the second installation of Regulate Tech. Today, uh, Richard Allen. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hi, Nicholas. And I will be discussing the Arab Spring. So a decade has passed since the events of what we call the Arab Spring played out in the Middle East and North Africa. Fueled by social media and the emergence of a transnational public space, people went to the streets to demand democracy. But when we look at the facts on the ground today, the situation is quite sobering. Uh, when Callie Robinson at the Council for Foreign Relations reviewed press freedom, internet freedom, GDP growth, journalists jailed, and the resulting refugee flows from civil wars, the picture that emerged was really bleak. On almost all of these scores, the region is much, much worse off. The only exception is democracy in Tunisia, the country where it all started, when fruit seller Mohammed Bouazizi set himself on fire, protesting the confiscation of his fruit and scale, crying... How will I make a living? The videos of the protests following his self immolation spread quickly. Ultimately, they led to the end of President Zina al Abidine bin Ali's 23 year long autocratic rule. And not only are the countries in the Middle East worse off in general, in Syria and Libya, the events that were triggered in Tunisia led to civil war that claimed millions of lives and displaced tens of millions of refugees, arguably even perhaps creating ISIS and the migration crisis, which in turn contributed to the rise of autocratic parties in Europe. You could even argue that the same social dynamics that created the new public space in the Arab Spring contributed to the rise of alternative publics and fake news, leading to the erosion of the institutions of democracy globally. So, Richard, how should we understand the Arab Spring today as the start of the breakdown of democracy in an age of unfettered social media and the end of the hope for democratizing internet? Or is there a more positive take on what happened since 2011? Wow, <laughs> um, a huge question,
1: and there's just one bit I wanted to to sort of focus on initially, and that, and that is this sort of question of whether or not the protests that occurred pr- pretty much ten years ago uh, from today were aimed at I- installing democracies, or were rather which which is sort of where I tend to be, a um, uh, protests against the then status quo. So it was people saying we're not going to put up with the status quo. We've we've lost all hope. We're going to resort to to desperate measures to overthrow the regimes that we have today. And I think it was that um uh, we must clear out what we have today uh, impetus that was was the real driving force rather than the um and successes that we replace it with a particular democratic model thereafter. Um, so I think that, f- for me, is 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 sort of where the where, where we really need to sort of look at this. And again, I'm I'm not um, an expert in the region. I'm not going to pretend to be. I certainly was a, a very um, involved witness to what was taking place because sitting in Facebook at the time, watching a lot of this play out across the platform, I saw what was happening. Uh, and I say that the impression I took away was that this was a powerful. You know, rage against the machine It, it was people in the region saying uh, life is unsustainable and and we we need change uh, and then we can we can then look at the kinds of change that occurred uh, over the subsequent ten years, but it was that that was the driving force.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's fair to say also that it it wasn't sudden. We talk about an Arab Spring as if it was this thing that occurred for a couple of months, but for example, there's a study by scholar Kara Alaimo that points out that that on the Facebook page we are all Khalid Said, where where while Ghanim uh, rallied Egyptian uh, protesters, he had been doing that for quite some time and coaching them for some time. So so it was really more of a case of of a long progress, uh, protracted uh, fight for civil rights that found a moment, and, and that moment sort of exploded.
1: I think that's absolutely right. And, and it was actually, again, I remember the time, it was kind of quite fascinating that, that um, I mean, we, we were blessed at Facebook that even um, sort of at that stage, we had some very good Arabic-speaking staff who, who were plugged into what was happening in the region and following it. And, and actually, they surfaced... Um, towards the back end of, of 2010, they they were surfacing um, groups and uh, uh, pages that that appeared on Facebook that were uh, organizing opposition to the regimes in the region. And it was actually really curious. I do remember we we would um, sometimes go to in that in that instance, particularly the U.S. authorities, because we had people again in the company who were well plugged into the U.S. authorities to, to try and. Um, get get some information from them about what they thought was happening. You know, we were asking questions, is this stuff dangerous? Where is it likely to go? And um, we would find that there was very little knowledge within the U.S. government of what was happening uh, at that time. So the specialists in the U.S. government said, well, Tunisia, Ch- 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 yeah, no, no, there's nothing happening there. And yet, you <laughs> know, the, um, the, the Arabic staff who worked for Facebook was like, hey, there's a lot happening here. We're, we're seeing all sorts of stuff being organized. Um, So I do think there was, it's interesting, there was a moment when the world paid attention, but you're right, um, you know, there'd been a lot of groundwork laid before then. Uh, People have been, there've been activists in the region uh, working not just through social media platforms, but working through the traditional kind of photostatic newsletters and things like that. So there's a long tradition of people organizing against what they felt were autocratic regimes and then people like Whale came along, um, who who obviously had real facility with the technology and could help some of those people to to use the technology. Um, but it wasn't out of nowhere, and it's a complete myth to think it came out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, and and it continues, right? I mean, it's fair to say that that even though the the state on the ground today might be uh, a bit worse uh, than one would have hoped, uh, the fight for civil rights continues. Do you think? In the long run, do you think that fight for civil rights is helped by or hindered by the internet, social media, the kinds of tools that we have?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think the fact that people have the tools means that um, that they, I mean, they definitely sort of have more straightforward means of political expression than they had um, previously. That doesn't mean that absent the tools, there wouldn't be political expression. I was just thinking about this before, that, you know, um, uh, way back when, uh, before before the internet became a public resource. I, I think it was, you know, Vince Cerf and others were were building it and it was available academically, but it wasn't a public resource. I remember uh, joining up with thousands of my friends to to sit in, in the road outside American nuclear missile bases in the UK. Uh, we had no problem kind of organising ourselves politically when we didn't have the internet. Um, so so it, it can happen where people are motivated, and I don't think we should overstate... Um, If you like the agency of the internet, as opposed to it being a tool that helps people who are already, um, you know, uh, claiming or organising some kind of political activity, but certainly makes it easier. Um, I think one of the interesting phenomena again, if I I remember back to, to what was happening then, was that certainly the governments, like the Tunisian government and the Egyptian government at the time, just weren't very capable when it came to internet and social media stuff, and so there was a sort of be like an arms race advantage to the protesters, because the protesters were were finding this quite straightforward, and and the governments hadn't figured out at that point um, that they ought to shut this stuff down or how they should shut it down. Uh, Tunisian government were a little bit further ahead; they they um, definitely in, in, engaged in some pretty um, offensive behaviour in terms of you know trying to attack uh, activists who were organising online. Egyptian government were, were fairly clueless at the time. Those governments have now caught up. Um, so that's the other interesting phenomenon, that there is now more of a arms race. I mean, pe- people in those countries uh, uh, can certainly be active, but I would say today it's probably much more likely that they will find that, you know, governments catching them and intervening
0: than would have been the case back at the time of the Arab Spring. Yeah, there was a definite competence gap, but it also flowed, I think, from the fact that there was a huge age gap between the age of the protesters and the age of the people in government very often across the entire region. And and it was sort of almost a generational battle where the new generation took their tools, the tools of technology to organize, right? there's something there 's something about that age structure that I think is interesting to think about as well i, I think that 's absolutely true that and and you know i mean I guess what 's happened since
1: and i don 't know whether how, to, you know, how we feel about this but uh, yeah, at the time you know, the picture that egypt was Egypt was run by sort of uh, ancient generals um, who were just not paying attention to to what was going on online I think probably was reasonably accurate at the time they now will have recruited you know a lot of uh, uh, younger people uh, who have the right technical skills and brought them into it. So so whilst the head of the Egyptian government is perhaps in a way a sort of similar aging general to the one that, that was there prior to the, the revolution, um, they will be now backed up by a lot of people with a lot of very good technical skills. Actually making them more comparable with um, another regime in the region outside the, the Arab part of the region, but Iran, where I- Iran has... You know, very very competent um, uh, cyber people in its revolutionary guards, and has been s- sending people off to get you know advanced degrees in in technology for years, and and so he's sort of inherently well equipped to deal with this. I think countries like Egypt were, were not doing that um, in the same way prior to the revolution, but I'm sure have caught up since.
0: Hmm. Yes. And if we go back to the Arab Spring, I mean, one interesting aspect of the Arab Spring was that to a certain extent, these revolutions were almost performed on social media. Even the press reported not so much on the events themselves as they reported on how the events unfolded on YouTube, Twitter and Facebook. So it made social media into this stage where it played out. Do you think this general medialization of the revolutions lessened the real, tangible political support from the rest of the world? If you if you look, there's, there's research, for example, on Twitter attention patterns suggesting that global interest was intense up until the moment when Mubarak was toppled, and then it quickly faded away. And some of the press reports faded away as well. Would the Arab Spring have evolved differently if Europe and the U.S., had less of a foreign policy attention deficit problem just watching this play out on a stage. Uh, say Syria, arguably, could have played out very differently if the US and Europe had put more pressure on Assad to leave, right?
1: Yeah, and, and so I th- again, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. So I, th- I think that there's a really interesting question about attention to foreign policy events. And, and again, I'm old enough to remember live the, the fall of Ceausescu in Romania. And and in a sense, that was a sort of similar Patterns, the one you've described, that that um, yeah, frankly, most people in, in Western Europe certainly were not that focused on or knew very much about Romania. There was a moment when it became a big deal. In fact, you can think of the, the various uh, moments of revolution across um, Central and Eastern Europe at that period. And that was again pre internet, but when people became really focused tended to be when there was a televisual moment uh when some leader was sort of being hauled off <laughs> uh and that was a moment of focus and and I don't think many people's attention continued to be held, so in a sense the the Arab Spring was a sort of f- fast forward version where it had moved from being television only to actually t- t- television plus social media that's where we were we were watching it the the sort of core criticism i think remains that um uh, for many of us we we don't really understand the phenomenon beyond that which we see on our screens um and so i think that's a valid criticism is you know was it different i, I certainly again think that and a lot of people talked about this that branding these revolutions as facebook or twitter revolutions I I agree is in some way kind of insulting to the people who made them happen in the sense that if mm-hmm. you, if you assign the agency to Facebook and Twitter, as opposed to the agency being in the hands of, you know, br- brave men and women who, who decided that enough was enough and they wanted to, to change their r- regimes. Uh, I think that, that is kind of, you know, off the mark. Um, so the agency was with people in those regions who were who were you know engaging in in um, uh, very very sort of traditional uh, brave political action to try and seek some kind of change that then happened you know to play out in social media and and they had these social media tools available but we shouldn't con- confuse the availability of the
0: tools with the action itself um, no. but, uh, to a certain degree though that was kind of what actually happened because the 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 internet and the internet's role in the revolution almost devalued the actual social change on the ground happening there, which made it perhaps harder for for other countries to see very clearly that there was a there was a moment of intervention here that they would have to to make a decision about. Um, at least in some extent, it feels as if if that was the case. That's sort of what you're describing, right?
1: Exactly, and so we were. You know, we were more interested in the internet aspect <laughs> than we were in uh really trying to understand the dynamics that are taking place in these very complex countries. Where again, I I'm not as before not going to pretend to be myself an expert on it, although I'm a, say, a very close observer. Um but I'm not sure that that if you like, generally <laughs> the level of uh real knowledge and expertise about what happened, or, or the political system and the dynamics in countries like like Egypt or Libya, was increased even at a time when we were getting uh, pictures and images of what was taking place in those countries on our screens every day. So, so you're right, because of this focus, uh, the sort of Facebook, Twitter, people are almost talking more about about the dynamics of Facebook than they were about the dynamics between different political factions in Egypt, and that and that I. I think is unbalanced and unhelpful. And it means that, um, and again, people sort of essentially took their eye off the ball afterwards. Uh, once it you know, was no longer a, a sort of Facebook or Twitter story, it was no longer an interesting story. Actually, it was a, a much more profound and interesting story when you were thinking about you know the, the elections that subsequently happened and the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood and then opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood and, and so on. That actually was the real story. But we weren't talking about that. We were still just talking about, was it Facebook? Was it Twitter? How much credit to assign to them, which was not really the point at all. <laughs>
0: If, so, we agree, I think, that the agency was with the people and, and not with the technology. If we then agree that social media did not cause the Arab Spring, are there things that social media companies could have done differently to help affect positive change? Should they have removed violent imagery to make sure that the protests were less about violence? Should they have required more fact checking? How should they have reacted to the use of their services here? And, and let's put that in, a, in perspective. If this happened today, what do you think would play out differently? What do you think, given everything that has happened since in terms of content moderation, the responsibility of platforms, all that stuff, how do you think it would have played out differently today? So I think you, I mean, you put your finger on
1: actually a couple of the really, I think, critical questions. So um, around you know what kind of uh, propaganda, if you like, do, are you comfortable um, with people putting out there? And what, what kind of... Protest organizing, you're comfortable with, and it's it's really hard to get away um, f- from making a judgment that there are there's good propaganda and good protests, bad propaganda and bad protests, and I don't, like to pull that apart a little bit. That you know, in in the middle of the. Um, situation that was taking place again. Rem- remember, there were other things happening at the time that Wiki, uh, WikiLeaks had got hold of these diplomatic cables, and the, the diplomatic cables were included information about some of the leaders in the region. And there was all sort of information kind of flying around um, that I think if you had been in one of those regimes, you would have tried to label it as fake news and propaganda, and you'd have wanted it shut down. And yet, I think you know um, most people who sort of come from a Human rights free expression background would say, no, no, this is legitimate. You, you, you ought to be able to circulate images of people that have been tortured by the state or killed by the state. You ought to be able to circulate information that tells you about the, the material excesses of, of the leaders of a country. Uh, these are you know key political facts. In a different context, we might take a different view, um, and so uh, we might might be more willing to say this is kind of inappropriate fake news or uh, uh, excessively violent information that's stirring up trouble in, in a context where perhaps the target is a democracy, and those who are um, uh, causing the trouble are uh, just characterising by their place on the spectrum, but like a far-right group that is trying to cause trouble um, uh, against a democratic regime, there would be a lot more sympathy with intervening. So again, very, very difficult because you've got uh, essentially similar content, uh, content that is making claims about political leaders, content that is is quite um, violent in nature, that, that is quite emotional in nature, and yet depending on the context i think we may take a very different view about whether it should be suppressed or or permitted um so yeah that, that I, I find fascinating again i've got some more thoughts I'm, oh uh, please go ahead yeah uh, no, so i just going to sort of write down around I, i've got some writing to do around that because i do think it is very hard um to come up with a a sort of consistent framework that doesn't involve a, a large amount of value judgment and again, to go back, if I sort of put myself in in my own shoes, when we were back there, you know, we definitely took a view that the um, uh, say great Arabic speaking stuff that we had at Facebook um, flagged some of this content and said, "Hey, you know, this is happening. It's important." Again, I, I'm I'm not an expert on the reason, so I tried to ask them to to explain to me what was happening, why it was important, so that when we made decisions about that content and sometimes it comes across your desk to say, you know, there's something that's marginal here. We could leave it up, we could take it down. What do we want to do? Um, That I had some kind of understanding that this content was important. Um, But that's not a, it's not a kind of bright line, you know, the content that is uh, of this nature must always come down and must always stay up. You end up um, factoring context into that. and and an understanding of context to understand whether you use the word, whether your bias is uh, to try and protect that content because you think it's important or your bias is uh, to try and
0: remove that content because you think it's dangerous. Um, How do you think, because going back to to the question, assume now, fast forward 10 years, uh, you're still at that desk and these decisions come across your desk again with everything you know about the increased pressure on content moderation you know the, the demands for platform responsibility the uh, the uh, worries about platforms eroding democracy through manipulation of the electorate etc do you think that the appetite not necessarily from you but the appetite from platforms not to point to any specific company would be radically different today to stand up for this kind of content or do you think that the same kinds of decisions would end up being made
1: uh- I, th- I think the same kind of decisions are still being made in the sense that people still need to apply judgment. So this is this is not my job anymore. But I am very confident, um, uh, because you know this has been the pattern for years that there's somebody in a platform company today who has got demands in front of them from Russian prosecutors saying uh, that Alexei Navalny is a dangerous extremist, that that his claims about corruption are fake news and lies. And the, the platform should be taking down uh, Navalny's content and taking down any protests in support of him. And actually those same people will, I'm sure, um, be getting requests not actually from the US government, because the US government typically doesn't d- do this, but but certainly very strong requests from people in US civil society saying that um, some of the folks, like the, the QAnon type f- folks in the US are circulating false lies and propaganda and are organising events that could turn out to be dangerous. And they're going to have to apply their judgement in both cases. And I think instinctively, certainly my my, uh, first instinct would be to try and protect uh, the Alexei Navalny content and probably to feel more comfortable removing the QAnon content. Um, But I say on on the face of it, at one level, these are very similar requests. Uh, this, you know, someone is making a claim, this is false propaganda and or a dangerous assembly. Um, but you need to make a judgment when you're sitting in the platform as to whether or not you agree with that, or you think that the the claim uh, is invalid. And again, I, you know, I don't, I don't think there is a, a sort of s- simple set of if A, then B <laughs> uh, principles you can apply here. It's got to be uh, take in all of the information and make a judgment about, you know, what you think the platform should do. And and you have to make that decision. I mean, the other thing you know, people outside uh, um, sometimes don't appreciate is these the decisions need to be made in real time. You know, the demonstration is tomorrow. Uh, you've got six hours to decide whether or not to respond to this uh, request that's come in. Um, would be lovely to be able to, to sort of go through a, some kind of quasi judicial process and, and spend hours and hours and hours uh, debating the pros and cons, but but you can't. You've got to you've got to make the best decision you can on the information and you've there, got available.
0: And there's a real risk to lives to to people's well being, right? So there is, there is the stakes are pretty high. They're pretty high, and again, I know, and often in these calls. I, I, i when
1: I'm talking about these things. I'm not, I'm not expecting people to sort of uh, suddenly overflow with sympathy for the people who work <laughs> on the platforms who, who um, you know, are w- well rewarded for doing that job. As was I when I did it, uh, um. But I do hope that they'll understand that this is, you know, pe- people do take this stuff seriously. They do try and make the best decisions that they can. Um, but they don't have the luxury that of, of what I think some people sometimes think they they would have of, of I say, either being able to apply a very very simple set of principles uh, of the if a then b type type thing because those just don't work in real life they break down like you know people say well if the protest is illegal you should remove it well again in the examples I've given that means that every time the Russian prosecutors say uh please remove all of the opposition protests you would just take them down so if illegal doesn't seem to work okay if violent uh, then remove it well again, partly depends on who's doing the violence. Um, so you get requests. I've seen them come in and say, uh, requests in some places actually around things like gay pride marches. Well, the, the authorities say you can't allow this gay pride march to go ahead because there'll be violence. What do you mean? Well, people will attack the marches and therefore it'll be a violent protest. And then we say, so, okay, that doesn't work. So you sort of go through these different principles and you find that that in the real world, Um, you end up with unique situations and each unique situation requires judgment. And that's the best I think we can hope for, is that the people who work at the platforms apply good judgment. And then actually one thing that's interesting, I noticed that um, Facebook has said it's referring to its external oversight board, uh, the the question around um, uh, uh, former President Donald Trump's presence on the platform That that is actually an interesting exercise, and people can be sniffy about the the external oversight board. But that model of perhaps having somebody um, after the event look at how you came to the decision you made and take a view on that, I think could actually be quite a a useful um, uh, exercise to do, given, I say, in many cases, it's quite hard to get that kind of very detailed, uh, in-depth in scrutiny done before a decision. But certainly you, you should be able to do it um, after the event and say, was it right or not? And then try and learn
0: from it. So assume for a moment that you're advising a platform you're you're back working for a platform and and you're suddenly given the opportunity to externalize all of this content moderation there is there is a proposal on the table to have an, a completely externalized content moderation function an institution a public body that will make all of these decisions for you when a request comes in you just forward it and they then come back with a decision would you say fine this is what we've been looking for or would you say I am not comfortable with that because I want to retain the capability to make those decisions within the company.
1: Uh, I actually don't think you can ever fully externalize it because it is your platform. And so, so, so you imagine you do that, uh, and people are still unhappy with the results. And you say to them, they they come to you and say, oh, "This decision is terrible. You took my content down. or You left it up." And you say, "Sorry, not me. It was the external moderators that I've appointed." and then the person's going to say well fire those external moderators and get some better ones and yeah as the platform you could so you, you i don't think you can ever get away from your own responsibility as a platform for those um initial decisions that you make or those day-to-day decisions you make i certainly think uh, the the model i say i think the facebook model is is um pretty sensible in in the sense that it's it's workable that you can have somebody look at the decisions you've made and then sort of give feedback that may then change the way in which you make future similar decisions so you're you're subjecting your your decision making to scrutiny and audit in in quite a public way that makes sense can you outsource the decisions well I, again i don't think uh, as a user of a platform uh that I would say, oh, you know, oh, yeah, it's fine now, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google, whatever. Yeah, it's fine. You've sent it to the external body. Therefore, you have no responsibility. Like They're always going to have responsibility, I'm afraid, because they are the ones who hire and fire the external moderators as well as the internal moderators.
0: Unless that external body, of course, was an appointed set of almost public servants doing the moderation, right? So, so that's the bit that um, you know potentially d-
1: does work. Again, if you're going to go down that route, then then, uh, and again, this, people have different views depending on where they live. But but um, if the platform's not going to do it, the other obvious alternative is that the government does it, and it becomes a, a legal thing. So in a sense, every decision is a legal. Type decision made by some court or regulator that that has a, an intellectual logical coherence to it um, uh, because that is a body that has authority to make decisions. I think where that falls down is at the very practical level that there is not a, a government in the world that would be equipped to do that at, at scale. Um, and so again, I, I think it probably is. I think where we're heading actually in in the UK with the online harms legislation and in Europe with the Digital Services Act is I think we're heading towards a model where the audit function, if you like, the external oversight board for every platform is going to be a national regulator. So we're going to create that oversight. Whether or not they have their own private external oversight board is up to them, but national regulators are going to take themselves the power to oversee and audit the decision-making processes of the platforms the day-to-day decisions will still be made by the platforms. And I'm not I'm not sure, as I said, I'm not sure there's a regulator who could do it. I'm not sure there's one who would want it to be sent, you know, potentially millions of uh, individual cases each year. Most regulators, I mean, even where they're dealing with stuff like like you know, television broadcast media, uh, at most may get a few thousand uh, complaints a year. Um, so the idea that they would suddenly be deluged with millions and millions of complaints that they have to deal with, I think is... It's not something that regulators want either. But what they do want is the power to go in and say, "Right, show me the systems you've got. Show me how you dealt with those millions of complaints." Oh, and by the way, if a citizen thinks you're doing it wrongly, and and I agree there's something to what a citizen in my country says about your decision making, you know, I'm going to use that complaint to to come in and and do an audit or or look at a specific policy area. So that relationship, I think, could work. Um, and that's probably the, I think, sort of where we'll end up. Again, that's the other issue about that we often sort of fail to factor in is uh, we're looking at platforms as you know, creating new structures. And I don't think we're necessarily paying enough attention to the fact that regulators are, are they've signaled very clearly they're going to move into the space. Governments are going to move into the mm. space.
0: Yes that seems that seems very likely, I and mean, as you say in the pending legislation that 's actually even outlined, so you 're quite right, mm-hmm. uh, going back to the Arab Spring, um, some have argued that anonymity is a key to understanding the power of social media in the Arab Spring in these autocratic societies uh, anonymity the anonymity that social media provided opened up this space where you you could share your experiences of oppression or corruption. But yet today, if you look at the issue of anonymity, it's increasingly under siege. Should we protect it more and remind ourselves that it can be useful? We can turn that into an even more general design question, I think, for platforms, for services. Should our social media be designed for benign democracies or for budding autocracies? Is the cost of anonymity in democracy and insurance worth paying to ensure that you can defend it if democracy is lost? Or is that anonymity more likely to contribute to the loss of democracy in the first place? How do we think about anonymity in the terms of in 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 the context of, of platforms? So, so I think
1: we, we I'm I'm always interested in when we um, look at problems to kind of really try and define properly the the harms that we're we're concerned about. And uh, I, I think with anonymity, we we'll often end up talking about different things. It's really important, I think, to tease out two aspects of it. So. so one is when i'm using an internet service is it possible for somebody to trace back my usage of that the internet service to me as an individual a real life individual sitting in a particular location that's one piece the second piece is when i'm using services on the internet am i representing myself in, in my authentic identity or am i representing myself in some other way that the you know nobody on the internet knows you're a dog uh, phenomenon. I think it's really important to keep those two two separate, and and uh, because they they are there uh, when we're when we're talking about them, we're trying to address two different kinds of of harm. So, just on the representation question, um, again, I think really important to understand that. For uh, I actually think that you know different services can have different models for representation. The 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 sort of Facebook model of asking you to represent yourself in your authentic identity. It is, I mean, at heart, a privacy measure. And just just to unpack that, it's because when you go on Facebook, you are sharing often quite sensitive personal information, photos of your kids, photos of yourself, all all that sort of stuff. And you want to know that the person you're sharing it with is who they say they are. And that really is the heart of, of, of why you have that authentic identity, very specifically on Facebook as a network where people share sensitive personal data with family and friends doesn't mean it's the right model for any other network and in fact you know for even within the facebook family something like instagram doesn't have that same requirement because on instagram it's much more about sharing you know some more more uh, creative or the heart of it was always more creative products or more creative content with with a, a much broader audience but on a network where as i say it's all about um sh- sharing information with known people there is a problem if you suddenly start start allowing people to misrepresent themselves, it starts to become very deceptive in that particular context. So I say authentic identity, I think, is one question, and um, uh, requiring it can be a very important harm prevention measure in a context where people are expecting to be sharing content with real known individuals uh, and and would be really disappointed if they shared content with someone and found they weren't who they said they were and they're going to go off and do something sort of abusive with that content so that's the authentic identity piece i say and i think that's horses for courses some platforms it makes sense other platforms it doesn't um and it does cause issues i don't minimize them it causes issues if you are for example a human rights activist and you you want to use facebook but you can't do so in uh, your public identity um and that, that's there's a trade-off and it, it is really hard and it's still i think sort of not fully resolved that the trade-off is essentially are, are you going to say well everyone must be authentic because that's really important for privacy and sharing um, except we're going to create a category of exemptions for uh, uh people who want to be um, deceptive for good reasons <laughs> whilst whilst still cracking down on the people who are being deceptive for bad reasons and human rights activists are being deceptive for good reasons therefore they can go onto the platform make friends with people and misrepresent who they are uh, because we accept that's that's positive somebody else going onto the platform misrepresenting themselves in order to commit fraud or steal content or whatever we're going to keep shutting them out again don't have an answer. I, I have a lot of sympathy with the human rights activists. I've debated this with them uh, extensively, and I think they are in a really difficult position. Um, candidly, my you know the the best advice you can give is look if you cr- create a identity on a social media platform that's that's not in your actual name, but behaves like a legitimate entity and doesn't cause anyone to create com- complaints about it, you're probably going to be okay. Um, uh, that again, that works if you want privately to use the social media platform. Um, and again, you're not you're not making friends with people who don't know who you really are a lot, and it's quite a good network. So, so you're probably fine. It does become a problem though if you try and do anything sort of very public and active, and people start reporting you. And yes, then there's a real threat to your account. So authentic identity, and then real real anonymity, which is essentially you can't trace. Uh, uh, my activity back to me and that's obviously there the harm you're you're really worried about is is well again it could be fraud but but typically it's um uh, government surveillance things like that 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 you're primarily worried about there i think there is a a challenge and that challenge is in, in many ways um uh, I was going to say almost inher- inherent in the switch to mobile in that as we are, you know, the devices that we now use typically to access the internet um, do have quite strong identifiers on them and and do uh, tie into uh, networks that are designed to identify people, phone networks. Um, so it is, I think, it's only harder for the casual user to be genuinely anonymous uh, it's quite a lot of effort to to go from that and people you know have ways of doing that through tor browsers and vpns and a whole whole bunch of different things that, that you can set up but i think that the it is true that the casual use of the internet can normally be traced back to an individual especially if they're using a mobile phone on a you know standard commercial network um again different views about that i i, uh, I can see some sort of important cases where where you shouldn't be traceable um, but equally, if you're just looking at it from a harms perspective, uh, it, there are many, many instances where being able to trace people um, uh, is essential in order to prevent quite serious harms. I mean, the big, big sort of political and legislative question as to, to um, uh, when and whether governments have that balance right in terms of when they can when, when they can trace people back. Um, but I think we do have to say from a technical point of view, yeah, yes, I think it's probably uh, increasingly challenging to, to be genuinely anonymous.
0: And there's, there's almost no possibility to be genuinely anonymous, given that that, that you're interacting with a number of different uh, services and somewhere in between there is going to be identity leak in some way, if you're using your mobile, for example. But 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 that doesn't preclude the question, should anonymity be designed in should should you build stronger anonymity solutions or is is the value of anonymity uh overstated but but again i would i would question when we're saying that do we mean building in true
1: anonymity which would uh, a subset of which would be being able to um i'll use the the the, the more emotive language being able to misrepresent who you are Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know are are we saying that so or are we are we just saying that we're interested in the misrepresentation piece Um, and that that internet services should allow you and again actually Germany is very interesting Germany Germany uh, um, took Facebook to court sort of demanding the right for people to be able to misrepresent themselves uh, and, and pretend to be someone else uh, interestingly, at the same time as saying, you guys are terrible on fake news and and fraud and deception. You've got to get rid of all of that. And so, again, it's a classic area where there's one of these sort of inconsistencies. You're being asked to do um, two contradictory things by government at the same time. Uh, one, uh, you must respect people's right to to mis- misrepresent who they are. Uh, two, you must get rid of um, uh, fraud and fakery on your network. Um uh, and again, I think that's sort of underpinning that um, is an assumption that only the good guys will misrepresent themselves. And so so you come back always to these kind of value judgments to say, yeah, I, yeah. as a network, does would, would a good and honorable network, a good and honorable platform um, uh, be able to sort the sheep from the goats and say... You know, here are the good people, and if you're a good person, you have a a right to represent yourself who you like because we believe in anonymity and we respect that. But if you're a bad person, you don't. And could they do that effectively in such a way that that when you're using the network, uh, you feel confident that you're not being cheated um, by other users of the network who who are lying about who they are? You know, you can see sort of why as I go through the argument, you can see why. Facebook in particular ended up saying, look, we're not going to be able to build that. So we're just going to build something where we say the price of being on our network is is authentic, honest representation. Um, Again, doesn't apply everywhere, but that that certainly applies, uh, well, certainly meets the expectations of people using that particular platform.
0: Hmm. So... Let's zoom out. We've been discussing the Arab Spring, and the Arab Spring uh, is a series of different things. As you've pointed out, it was not a Twitter phenomenon, it was not a Facebook phenomenon, but but it can still, if you look at it, be interpreted as a turning point for the way that we thought or think about the Internet in society. It's In a way, it's sort of the end point of the early Internet optimism, where where it was genuinely believed that the internet would uh, be a democratizing force, that it would bring um, you know, access to knowledge, it would increase free expression, it would have this, this effect of strengthening democracy and almost making it impossible to do censorship. There's this early saying, right? The internet treats censorship like damage and routes around it. All of that started to change in some way with, with the Arab Spring. And I think you could you could trace back the the early roots of the so-called tech clash, this notion that that technological uh, change and and social progress are are not just sort of not necessarily connected, but they may in some cases even be you know inversely connected. And and we're now uh Ten years into that tech clash do you do you see that changing, or do you see that as a sound correction of an over optimism and what would what would it take for us to to perhaps get a little bit of that early optimism back so,
1: so I think it's a it's a correction on the notion that there was a a, a, a sort of progress towards an inevitable goal of a a, a rational Democratic uh, systems are prevailing everywhere. I think that there's a correction with that, and I've been maybe reading too much of the political philosopher John Gray uh, lately. But he's he's the person who most you know pulls apart um, a vision that actually was probably encapsulated most by the the Bush Blair years, that there was there was a sort of inevitable um, democratic utopian destination we're all moving towards. And and just you know, if you gave people the opportunity, and, and this is where you get the disappointment in the Arab Spring, that people had the opportunity, and if you followed that philosophy that, that this there was a sort of inevitability to the victory of this particular model, um, it, you are disappointed that when people were given the opportunity, it didn't materialize. And I think there was a lot of that thinking like similarly around the internet. So if you believed, yes, when we when we um, connect everyone together. Then I'll, again, I'll use the emotive language. P- people in the less um, politically developed parts of the world will now connect with people in the more politically developed parts of the world, and and they'll learn from that. They'll see the light, and the internet will be part of uh, them heading towards. I say this inevitable, almost sort of quasi-religious vision of a, a, um, a particular future destination, and I think that like that's clearly not happened. Um, but I think the reason it may not have happened is not because the internet was incapable of delivering it, but because it was not real um and i would say you you read gray you'll you'll sort of read a lot more around what why or well, the argumentation as to why it it may not be real so so we're asking the internet to do something impossible and then we're disappointed that it hasn't done so it, 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 um so I think people who who um feel strongly that that or believe strongly in that model that that um, there is a, a progressive uh, or hum- mankind is progressing steadily towards this uh, single democratic model will continue to be disappointed. Um, those who 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 take a different view sort of so look back and say, well, there can be a plurality, a diversity of different political systems and ways in which people organize societies. That that. Um, I mean, equally valid, and, and uh, if you take that view, then you may feel more um, uh, forgiving of what the internet is doing. I certainly think the internet has has reduced set, set the scope for censorship. I mean, you know, that's there. And in fact, what's interesting is um, many of the voices that are most calling for uh I guess reducing speech on the internet now come from that progressive side of the debate rather than from the more conservative side of the debate. Um, So so they are concerned in the sense, the reduction of the censorship, which I think is true across societies generally, it is now as a matter of fact, easier and cheaper for any individual to, to say whatever they like to the rest of the world than has ever been the case in human history. Um, And so that reduction of censorship, actually, the interesting thing is it's not led to, say, this uh, uniform view that we're all marching steadily towards a particular model. It's led, actually, to the growth of a lot of people positing alternative models, many of which are less democratic and therefore sort of less acceptable. And so this dynamic you're now seeing in some senses is um, progressives wanting to increase censorship in order to uh, uh, reduce the attraction of movements that they see as heading in the wrong direction, and that was not something I, I think I'd certainly anticipated that we would end up
0: um, where we are today. And in the long run, in the long term, if you if you were to um... Sort of put your futurist hat on. Do you think the internet will be a net good influence on the way that democracies evolve in the coming decade, or do you think that it will be net neutral, or do you think that it will be a net negative for uh, for the way that we continue to build our democracies? Uh, so I think it'll be an. It's certainly going to be a net good for expression.
1: Um, you know, even even with all these sort of new rules and things that are bouncing around. Say this this cr- crucial fact that if if you simply look at it in terms of one's expressive power, um, the internet has made that you know orders of magnitude greater than it was before. And we go back thirty, forty years, and while some of the same phenomena were playing out on television and in, in the the traditional media, we have got to remember that there there were these huge bottlenecks and control points where very small numbers of people decided um what could get out to to uh, the rest of the world and and those bottlenecks and control points have definitely been um uh, reduced in importance because the internet exists um will that be net good for democracy i'm not sure um because as i say i think you you, you need to, to come back and say well are, are we um if you believe that uh, you know, democracy spreads and increases s- simply on the the basis of exposure, I think you're going to continue to be disappointed. And, and actually, one of the phenomena that I, because the, the internet's not going to do that for you. And um, the other day, just in the context of some of these sort of speech questions, that I, there was a, a uh, I think, a naivety around the creation of platforms. And I don't mean that in a, a mean way, a nice naivety, which was the belief that, if we just connect people together around the world, they will all understand each other better and love each other a little more. And the reality has been in many instances when we've connected people around the world, they found out how much they dislike other people and disagree with them, and they've liked each other a little less. And so, you know, in a sense, that's it'll be the same with democracy. That that um, uh, there was a core belief: if we just connect people, they'll they'll get more information uh they'll be more rational, they'll make more rational decisions, and those decisions will be more progressive, just to use that word. In reality, a lot of people have taken the internet tools and and um formed perfectly legitimate sort of political groupings that are um hostile to a lot of the ideas that progressives would put forward. So so is that the it's not the outcome that you would want? Um, And maybe you would say, well, then then it has failed. But is it a democratic outcome? It's certainly a democratic outcome if if people have organized uh, their political uh, power more effectively than they did previously. That's what democracy is all about. Uh, It just may not be very attractive.
0: It brings us back to the question of human nature that's been at the heart of of the, should be at the heart of the discussion about technology generally, because technology, as you point out, the the notion of technical determinism, that technology will drive democracy or that technology will create dictatorships is in itself one in which there is very little human agency. Um, With that, uh, I think we should conclude and... Uh, say that this episode of regulate tech uh, can be found at uh, richard's website do you want to give the address Uh, regulate.tech keep it nice and simple (laughs) that's very good and if you have any questions ideas or subjects that you'd like us to talk about don't hesitate to to send us um, your proposals we would love to see them thank you so much thank you